Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh, and there's Chuck, and Jerry's here too. And that makes this stuff you should know. And Chuck, Chuck, Chuck. Yes. Before we get started, I feel like we should say something to some of the newcomers who haven't quite figured out our vibe yet. Yeah. When we Other say, newcomers? There's a couple. The two, we'll call them. The twins. Okay. The, when we say stuff you should know, mm-hmm. we even said this on Jeopardy, by the way. When we say stuff you should know, we're not saying like, why don't you already know this stuff? You should know this. We're of saying, course. this is so interesting. We, we want to share this with you. We think you should know this. So we want to tell you about it. That's the purpose of the title of the episode or of the podcast. We should call it in this tone exactly. Here's something you should know, guys. <laughs> okay, I just wanted to get that out of the way. I I love that. Do you feel like there's been confusion? I feel like you, there's been confusion 13? for 13 years <laughs> among some people. I think some people are actually offended by it. Like who do these guys think they are? Yeah. Telling me what I should know. Didn't you exactly. think of this title? <laughs> yeah. And uh, no. it was apparently imperfect. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I had an alternate title back then. What was yours? Here's something you should know. <laughs> Guys? <laughs> uh, I'm going to try and do my best to couch my disdain for today's topic. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think uh, you already miffed that mission. Uh, it's about Alistair, and uh, there's a lot of just... You know, someone like him was very divisive. You could go to any uh, internet board and read a little bit about this dude. Yeah. And you will still see so much divisiveness. Yeah. Uh, and there's a lot of conflicting information, including mm-hmm. right before we recorded, uh, recorded, I said something about Crowley. And you said, I heard it was Crowley. <laughs> yeah. So, like, uh, but I just, you know, I'm going to go ahead and get this out of the way. We'll We'll do an overview of this guy. But I found him to be... Uh, above all, narcissistic, mm-hmm. uh, one of the most self-aggrandizing, misogynistic, manipulating users of others who didn't really have anything interesting to say or add to the good of humankind. Wow. In my opinion. And yet, this was your pick. What made you decide to want to do one on on uh, Mr. Crowley Crowley? I didn't know anything that much about him. So now I do, and now I can have my own informed opinion. Yeah, totally. But if you go on these message boards, you'll find people that say what I said, you'll right. find people that say the man was pure evil and, you know, blah, blah, blah of that train. I don't think he was. I think he was no, just No, we can narcissist. dispense with that. Uh, and then other people who are like, he's my hero. Yeah, I think in the people who uh, he is he is a hero to are also not so, like, disillusioned that they're like, no, he was great in every way. They're like, he was misunderstood and he also was often his own worst enemy is usually how they kind of defend it. Because it doesn't matter whether he was a hero to you, the most evil person in the world, he was frequently called the the most wicked man in the world, or just a total a-hole who didn't contribute anything. Um, he was a jerk. Everyone everyone agrees. That's the yeah. one thing everyone agrees <laughs> on, that he was a total jerk. Well, I think that's where the narcissism is something that really triggers me in particular. So mm-hmm. I, that just kept popping up over and over. And I just kept saying, who does this guy think he is? You must have had a really hard time during the narcissist epidemic (laughs) of the 2000 aughts. What was that? Don't you remember? It was like a whole psychology movement. This pair of psychologists basically tried to make their career by trying to prove that there was an entire generation of narcissists that had been raised and now every the world was about to be ruined. And yeah, what generation? they were right. But it was, you know, (laughs) pop psychology. What generation was it? Uh, I guess millennials is what they were okay. who they were talking about, which is kind of mean because that was at the time everybody was picking on millennials for just about everything, and then these two come in and we're like, yeah, and get this—they're also narcissists. I don't know about that, but I, I think in Crowley Crowley's case, uh, <laughs> no. there's a narcissism that's uh, that's uh, a narcissism. <laughs> actually, I said it right. Yeah, you did. That's kind of off the charts. Like there, there's a self-importance that <clears throat> it. Self-importance really bugs me, too. So, intertwined, someone who really thinks they have a lot to say. Uh, I mean, you can tell by how much this guy wrote. Like, overriding, I have so much to say. Right. I write 50 books and, like, read any of this stuff, and it's just like, kill me. 
Okay, so... <laughs> all right, so I'm going to park all that to the side and be totally neutral from here on out. Well, I don't think you have to be, but I do think we should explain why this guy would even be worth a podcast episode then. Um, part well, of the let's reason- just say who he is first, because everyone that, who doesn't know Ozzy Osbourne is like, who even is this jerk? Okay, so even if you don't, even if you're not familiar with Ozzy Osbourne, which stop this podcast right now and go familiarize yourself with the body of work of Ozzy Osbourne. Right. Yeah, start with and Blizzard then come Oz. back, right? and then go back to uh, Black Sabbath. Right. Um, like even if you're not familiar with that, you probably have seen a picture of Aleister Crowley. The picture. <laughs> The basically the picture where he looks like he's doing the Olin Mills pose, like, hey, I'm just hanging out around the barnyard feeling good right now. But he's actually performing a, a, a magic ritual, a pose, mm-hmm. um, a form, I think is what they were called. Uh, everybody's seen that picture, right? I think so. I mean, you probably, a lot of people have probably seen it and didn't know that's who that was, even. Right. And even if you haven't seen that picture and you still haven't heard of Aleister Crowley, if you're a Beatles fan, if you are a fan of New Age stuff, mm-hmm. uh, if, if you like crystals, mm-hmm. if you buy people candles with their birthday horoscope on them because you, <laughs> you think it's actually going to influence their year, uh-huh. yeah, you can thank Aleister Crowley because he was basically the center point for all of that stuff coming about in the West. The idea of occultism, mysticism, um, spirituality outside of Christianity, Judaism, and even Islam, um, that the fact that it's present in Europe and America today is mm-hmm. almost exclusively through his efforts and work. Yeah, I mean, I will say this. The, the only reason he's noteworthy is because he did what he did when he did it. Uh, in the 80s, if you would turn on Jerry Springer on, on any day, you would mm-hmm. see eight Aleister Crowley sitting on stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this guy was doing it, you know, it, very early on in the 1900s uh, throughout the early 20th century when that kind of stuff, like that's why he got so much press was because he was doing things that you dare not speak of at, at a time when people weren't doing these things, or at yeah. least out loud. Even today, still, people are like, this guy was really over the top and oh, out sure. of bounds in a lot of ways. Like you said, there's some people on the message boards who still are like, he was evil. They're still scared of him. Uh, and this guy's been dead for 60, 70 years. And even when he was alive, he really wasn't all that menacing. I mean, um, like, he, 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 he tried to be, but if you just stopped and were like, what are you doing? And really kind of took yourself out of his, his little realm— you might even laugh at him, depending on the situation. I would. <laughs> yeah, I know you would. Uh, all right. So let's, I guess, start at the beginning, and we'll kind of breeze through his childhood, which was formative for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was born in 1875 in England. Uh, he's he's a British man, and he was born into a wealthy family. His family were brewers. They brewed ale, and uh, but were very, very religious, and this— mm-hmm was a big, big deal because they were members of a, of a religious group called, a Christian group called the Brethren, which was sort of just Christianity on steroids as far as, <laughs> uh, you know, saying things like sex was bad and sinning was bad uh, to the point where it, it reversed him. It had the opposite effect. Yeah, not only was like sex bad, like that's bread and butter Christian stuff. This was like... Um, like, you didn't sign a lease, I saw, or you didn't, like, take out life insurance because it suggested that you didn't have full faith that Jesus was about to come back any day yeah. now. Like, you didn't plan for the future. You also didn't take medicine. And that ended up killing his father, Aleister Crowley's father, um, who developed tongue cancer. And that apparently was a treatable condition at the time, which kind of surprised me, although they were probably just going to cut his tongue out. Yeah, um, that was it. But rather, were they really? Is that what they were going to do? I mean, when they say cancer of the tongue and surgery, then what else could it mean? Okay, sure. So, um, the brethren, that, of which he was a member, apparently they were an equal egalitarian group, they all kind of got together and like, we don't think you should do that. We think that it kind of shows a lack of faith in Jesus. And he was like, okay, I'm just going to roll the dice and see what happens. And he died. Um, and that apparently really soured Aleister Crowley on Christianity because he really looked up to his father, one, but I think he also really fully bought like the brethren as well. Um, and this was a huge, like, jarring um, crash into a wall. Yeah. It, you know, it left him with a lot of money uh, when he would become an adult. I think 
uh, and the grabster helped us out with this one. I think he said it was about two million bucks in today's money. So a lot of money, but as we will see, n- certainly not enough to last a lifetime. Uh, even back then, at least the way he burned through it. Definitely. It's uh, amazing he, it lasted as long as it did, really. Yeah, it made me wonder how much drugs cost back then because he bought a lot of them. Yeah, but he could just go down to the local chemist or, you know, um, pharmacy and buy them over the counter. So they were relatively cheap, I guess. I, I would guess so, yeah. I mean, right. the chemist doesn't try to tax you. <laughs> yeah, you, everyone knows pharmaceuticals are super cheap. Sure. Uh, so he was left with his mom who, you know, by all accounts, they didn't have the best relationship. Um, she was also super religious. Uh, I think Ed dug up in one biography that he sort of treated her as if she were the help, uh, in one of the servants. Mm -hmm. And she, in fact, referred to him as the beast, which was, uh, from the book of revelations and a name that he would later, uh, I think kind of keep on using for himself. Yeah, and I saw that she was, I saw both that she was jokingly calling him that in a mm-hmm. way, but also just chiding him for his bad behavior, or that she was a very, very pious person and that she would not have called him the beast unless she was like genuinely disgraced and, and um, abhorred by his behavior. You know what I mean? Right. Like she, yeah, she sure. wouldn't have used that lightly. So I'm not sure. I'm going to go with that, the second interpretation, because it's, it's scarier. Okay. <laughs> Uh, so then he eventually makes his way to Cambridge in 1895. Uh, he didn't graduate, but this was where he really kind of started getting interested in two things that would define the rest of his life, uh, the occult and sex. Yeah, for sure. That's where his, his life kind of changes. His typical going to college stuff. You know, yeah, sort of. <laughs> um, and and he was also he got into some other stuff. It, we we don't have to get into it much, but he he was a master, not a, a like a grandmaster, but he was a really good chess player for a he while. Could have been a grandmaster, from what I saw, like if he had pursued it legitimately. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, like he was considering a profession like of chess. But, uh, he also was a noteworthy mountaineer. Um, he was in the party that attempted the first British attempt on K2 ever. Yeah. It was unsuccessful, but they ended up breaking a record of, of living at 20,000 feet longer than anybody else. Like, he was a serious mountaineer for a very long time. But as he just kind of got a little older, and especially as he got a little further into, like, magic and sex in particular, he just kind of lost as much interest like those were his life's passions and all of a sudden he's like i think i'd rather have sex of every single kind i can possibly think of than than climb a mountain and he still climbed some mountains and there were some huge issues that came out of that pursuit and and, at, at times but um like you said more than anything he directed his life toward magic and sex he says i think i'd rather climb sexual mountains sexual (laughs) right um well should we take a break already i think we should Oh, okay. Well, then you just answered your own question. You begged the question in the best <laughs> sense of that term. All right. We're going to take a little break here. I'm going to collect myself, and we'll talk more about sex magic right after this. I think before we talk about sex magic, mm-hmm. can we talk a little bit about his poetry? Sure. <laughs> um, he was a, a writer, and like we said, he wrote uh, it, up to about 50 books, and some of these were collected and published just from stuff he had written along the way after his death. But he felt like he had a lot to say to the world, wrote a lot of erotic <laughs> poetry. Uh, the first collection was called White Stains uh, under the pseudonym Archibald Bishop. Uh <laughs> Don't have to work too hard to figure out what that means. I mean, it's so juvenile. It's hilarious. A lot. Did you ever read? Did you read any of his poetry? No. I mean, I saw like clips and snippets of it, and just just from reading so much stuff about how how not great it was, I was like, I'm not reading this. I'm not going to read it. In fact, I can't read it on the air because it's a family friendly show. It, uh, all of them it, start. There once was a man from <laughs> Nantucket. <laughs> Uh, there once was a narcissist from Nantucket. <laughs> right. 
Uh, but there is a poem I would encourage our, our readers of age uh, to go look up. And if you are not of age, don't do it. Oh, okay. If you're listening with your kid right now, distract them briefly. Mm-hmm. But it's a poem called Celia Farts. C-E-L-I-A-P-H-A-R-T-S? No, no. <laughs> F-A-R-T-S. Uh, and it's just a great example. And I'm sure he had more, you know, I guess legitimate poetry than this. But reading Celia Farts really soured me on what I felt like he thought he had to say to the world. Well, yeah, that's the thing. I think one of the things is, it's like, it'd be, I see what you're saying. It's a little bit, um, wow. Uh, (laughs) Did you look it up? Yeah, yeah, I did. (laughs) There's a Pinterest post that has it. It's like the first thing that comes up. So you, Uh yeah, you don't even have to really click in anywhere. But, um, (laughs) but I think one of the things that's so off-putting about him is he's like a Victorian, maybe an Edwardian or Regency era, but he's like of that era Victorian. He's, he's using words like farts and like it just keeps getting worse in that poem. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like so, it's just so like crude today. Like if somebody published that stuff today, you'd be like, this is crude and lowbrow. Yeah. But somebody from that era doing it makes it exponentially worse for some reason. And I think that that is exactly what he was into. Yeah, well, he certainly loved to push buttons. Uh, he rejected Christianity so forcefully that he decided, not only am I not into it, but I want to be the opposite of it. I think that the only problem with sin are the hangups that people put on it, mm-hmm. and that to be truly happy, you should just sin, 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 and I'm really good at it, and so that's what I'm going to do with my life. Yeah. And that is what he did. And he did, um, He, like I said, like any, basically any sex act you can think of. I did not see any accusations of bestiality, which really surprised me. Did oh, you? I did. Oh, you did? Okay. Did, did you get the impression that he actually did that? Because I, again, would be surprised if he hadn't, you know, met a donkey or two in his time. I, I saw that. <laughs> I saw, uh, and we'll get to this, his time when he was living in his slum commune in Italy. Things got really weird there. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I don't think we even said why there's a lot of conflicting information. He, you could never tell when he was being straight or writing the truth. And you could never tell when someone had, when he had made an enemy and they were writing something not true to make him look even worse. So, it's really hard to parse out the truth. But I did see stuff about uh, not him uh, committing a sexual act with an animal, but forcing a woman uh, to with a goat. Oh, okay. And that, I mean, that's... The thing is, 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 it is plausible. And the reason why is because he really did have a lot of sway. I thought you were going to say a lot of goats. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) He had a lot, he had enough sway over his acolytes during like his peak that he could have gotten something like that accomplished if he'd really set his mind to it. Sure. It's, It's entirely possible it did happen. He was into some really freaky stuff. But, like you said, you can't really tell what was made up by his enemies, and he had almost nothing but enemies. He had people who just had just met him and were under his spell, and enemies, which were people who had known him for longer than a couple of years. That was basically his, his world. Like, he didn't have friends, necessarily. Actually, not even necessarily. He didn't have friends. He had people who were under his spell or had, had just come out from under his spell. Yeah, and that, I think that's one of the things, too, that really helped reinforce how I feel about him is that, um, well, first of all, anyone who doesn't have old friends, you got to investigate that a little further, I think. Mm-hmm. But sure, things happen in life. Uh, but in his case, I think the fact that he was, I think had he gi- given the opportunity, he would have started a massive money-making religion a la L. Ron Hubbard. But it seems like he could never attract more than a handful of people at a time. And I think that's for a reason. Yes. Personality-based reason. I think the proof is in the pudding. He set out to create a huge, massive religion that would change the world. That was his goal, as we'll see. And just it didn't happen. And he also died um, without money. Uh, even though he had, had money, uh, despite, you know, like actually trying to perform magic rituals to attract money. So, right. like, yeah, he, his intent was there. But the thing to me, the thing to me that makes him legit in some way is that he was still performing rituals, still performing magic um, to the end. 
Like, he never gave up on it, even though, like, it didn't bring him the fame and the fortune, and it didn't change the world that he wanted. Like, he dedicated, truly dedicated his life to that. Yeah, I don't think he was a charlatan. I do think that he bought into this garbage himself. So, you know, he was authentic. It, definitely. I think that's actually <laughs> what I was trying to say. So, Should so, we go to Stockholm? Yeah, I think we should go to Stockholm because um, that is where uh, his one of his first mystical experiences happened, or that's the way he described it, at least. Yeah, and it was. Am I reading this right? In that this mystical experience basically was a result of having homosexual intercourse for the first time. Yeah, gay sex. Okay, good for him. And hey, I want to be clear: I'm not knocking anyone's kink because he had a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Not, I'm not knocking that at all. What someone does in the bedroom is like, that's fine and that's great. I support all of that. But I think his self-importance of like having to detail and write about it all as a guidebook for others, uh, it just, it is, it was a real turnoff for me. So, um, the reason that he was detailing this stuff and writing a guidebook for others using things like sex. Um, and by the way, once he was like, oh, actually, I'm bisexual. Like, yeah. for the rest of his life, he um, he he had uh, relationships with men and women. Sure. And there was one man in particular, Jerome Paulette, that he later said he really regretted breaking off uh, his relationship with because Paulette wasn't into the occult. But he wrote that um, with Paulette, he had achieved ideal intimacy, which the Greeks considered the greatest glory of manhood and the most precious prize of life. So that's how he described one of uh, his uh, his relationships Lovers. with a man, yeah. Um, and that really says a lot for somebody who didn't necessarily consider himself bisexual. I think he, more than anything, considered himself straight. He just had, like, you know, gay sex from time to time when, the, when it suited him. And sometimes some of those acolytes, like you said, he had no more than a few people around him. Sometimes it was all men. And if you were an acolyte of his, not only were you helping him perform magic rituals, you were helping him perform sex magic, too. And um, who knows where that was going to go. But very often, more often than not, it was degrading. Uh, he used uh, sexual degradation as a yeah. a, a way, uh, like a path, like a magic ritual, but also it was to show power and dominance over his acolytes as well. Yeah, and for some reason, it, and again, like if you look at the S&M community, that I, it didn't feel like that to me because if that's your kink, that's fine too. This felt more like a manipulative user of people than any particular sexual kink. Or or maybe he was born in a time where, I don't know, I mean, he certainly lived in a time where none of this was acceptable. Homosexuality was illegal uh, in England at the time. So, I don't know. I try to frame it at the the time and place and try and be a little bit more uh, understanding. You know I, what I mean? I, from stuff I saw and, like, reports from some of his acolytes, he, he seemed to, like, truly get pleasure from this stuff. Oh, I'm sure he did. So I don't, I don't know if it was just, like, a means to an end. Like, I think he was really immersed in it personally as well. I think so, but it seems like every time he was challenged as not the uh, – that the, the, he was done with someone. Once he had used mm-hmm. them up, mm-hmm. in, including his wife, which, you know, we'll get to in a minute. But um, just I guess we should quickly mention he did have other career paths he could have taken. We mentioned the chess. Uh, he did go to Russia to um, to learn the, the business of diplomatic services, uh, which is something he chose uh, at Cambridge. But um, he, he none of this stuff interested him. I think once he went down the path of the occult and – uh, these sexual, you know, you know, orgies at times that he would get involved in. He was like, this is it for me. Yeah, I'm living my best life. <laughs> I'm out there, Jerry, and I'm loving every minute of it. <laughs> Very nice. Good. I didn't think a Seinfeld reference was that <laughs> So, um, so he, he winds up his time at Cambridge, and he basically comes out of it like completely devoted to the occult even more devoted to sex, figuring out ways to combine those two things. He's still mountaineering from time to time. Uh, he's a, he's considers himself a poet. Um, 
But he also, <laughs> he considered You would have said he was right. a poet before he read Celia Farts. But he also, one of the other things about him, I saw it described as he, he was a magician and he considered himself a genuine magi- magician and he presented himself as a genuine magician, yeah. not an illusionist, not a stage magician. Yeah. Somebody who actually could, could bend reality using his will based on rituals and spells and incantations and communicating with people from, or beings from other other spiritual planes, right? Yeah, magic is, with a CK. Right, and he apparently was the one who added the K at the end, which is an old, old spelling of magic, but he did that to differentiate the two. Right, but he didn't invent the K, he just brought it back. Yeah, he is revived it, yes, okay. from what I saw. Uh, he was obsessed with books, not only reading, uh, he had wall-to-wall books in his apartment, um, but like I said, writing, uh, Ed dug up a scholar that, that suggested he might have uh, what's called grandma mania, which is a pathological obsession with writing, mm-hmm. and to never be satisfied and to just keep writing, starting new things before you're finished, uh, that kind of thing. So that might be possible. Right. Um, so one of the other things that he was really good at was traveling. Like he could just go somewhere. Like he, I saw him described as like utterly without inhibition, whether yeah. it was with sex um, or whether it was like, oh, let's go see how they do things in Burma. Uh, right. And as when he went from place to place, he picked up things. He would fi- he would find like the occult and esoteric traditions and religious traditions, even mainstream religious traditions of these places, and would figure out how you know, certain parts of them fit in with his own his own view of the occult and his own practices with magic. And um, he did that by, by just touring the world for long periods of time, which is something people did back then anyway, right? Like, you know, if you went to Europe, you stayed there for like two years because the, the yeah. it took so long took so to get long. there and back, right? But he, even for his time, he was, he was a, a very seasoned traveler. Yeah, and like you said, it's really one of the important facts of his life because what he would end up doing is creating his own, uh, I guess I guess you would call it a religion, Thelema. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Thelema was based on all of these travels and everything he picked up. He There were a couple of secret society, occult societies he joined along the way uh, and then eventually ran afoul of. Uh, one was called the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one was called the Ordo Templi Orientis, uh, the OTO. Mm-hmm. And it seems like in both of these groups, and these were, you know, years apart, so it wasn't like, uh, I think, seven to nine years apart he joined these. Both times, it seemed like he tried to run the show when he got involved mm-hmm. and rewrite their stuff to suit his needs. And uh, what he was doing, though, was was really trying to create his own jam uh, and kind of using up these, order, you know, religious orders along the way. Yeah, and um, I saw w- just a little side thing real quick, Chuck. I saw that he once had a vampire sicked on him by William Butler Yeats, <laughs> uh, the poet. Yeah, they were they were enemies within yeah. the, uh, what was it called, the first one? The Golden the, Dawn? Uh, the Order of the Golden Dawn, yeah. Yeah. And, like, uh, Yates considered himself a white witch, and he very clearly had decided that um, that Crowley was a black witch, or a black magician, I should say. Uh-huh. And um, so, for, for Yates and the other people in the Golden Dawn who were opposed to Crowley, they, they considered, like, him dangerous. And, like, he couldn't learn some of these these mysteries because he would unleash the stuff on on humanity and basically start a reign of evil here on earth so <laughs> Yates sicked, sicked a vampire on him for like nine nights all right he that he just went up a notch in my book then who Yates no oh Crowley. Oh. because Good. why do you hate Yates even more than you hate Aleister Crowley no no I love Yates but uh t- to ha- to be able to say that hey you know one time WB Yates sicked a vampire on me <laughs> for nine days for nine days <laughs> he just he just earned a little a little point I got in, the you. Chuck, okay. in the Chuck world. Okay, well, I'm glad we talked about that then. Uh, for a while, he lived, for a pretty long while, he bought this house uh, on Loch Ness called the, uh, I saw it pronounced the Boleskin House, mm-hmm. or Boleskin. Mm-hmm. Uh, not Boleskin. Uh, this house became a little more famous in the 1970s when Jimmy Page bought it of Led Zeppelin because he was fairly obsessed with Crowley for a while. Uh, although, by all accounts, Page did not spend much time there. It was in very bad condition. Mm. And he kind of took one look at it and was like, eh, somebody should fix this place up. What a and he dump. assigned a guy to live there and just never really went back. But um, 
he did live there for a while and he owned the house for kind of a long time. It was one of it was one of the only places he would stay for any length of time, basically. Yeah, Bolskin reminds me of Archibald Bishop for some reason. <laughs> you know? Doesn't sound right. Like another pseudonym would be Dr. Bolskin. <laughs> right. Yeah. One of the ways that he brought people under his influence too, even people who opposed him, was by uh, using his wealth. Um, he wasn't above using drugs. He he was surrounded oh, yeah. by people who were using drugs, and some of them had happened upon uh, like habit uh, habits, like heroin or cocaine habits. He would he would find people who had you know power or status in some of these orders, and would be like, "Hey, how about I give you some of that heroin you crave so much and unlimited supply? How's that sound? Go ahead and initiate me into this inner circle." Um, he would he would use stuff like that. Like you said, he was one of the greatest manipulators of of his age for sure. But it, in doing so, what he was doing was he wasn't just doing it to get power. He his ambition wasn't just to become the head of the Golden Dawn or the head of the OTO. He wanted to learn as many secrets as he could. Just like when he was traveling in the East uh, and he was picking up, you know, yoga um, or he was picking up mysticism from Egypt, like he wanted to learn their secrets to figure out the stuff that actually worked. That was his goal. That was his ultimate goal. Okay. Um, So I mentioned a wife. In 1903, he married Rose Edith Kelly, uh, and they were really, really, really into each other. She was – got very into what he was into – uh, they went to Cairo on their honeymoon in 1904, and by all accounts, it was a, a life-changing experience where they were both channeling Egyptian gods, and this is where he, uh, through channeling Egyptian gods, so says him, mm-hmm. um, wrote his big sort of Bible uh, called the Book of the Law, which would become the basis for Thelema. Uh, yeah. And he says he was, you know, like I said, channeling uh, – a being called uh, Iwas? That's all I A-I- saw. Oh, really? Yeah, Iwas. That's how I heard it from everybody. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, this is where he has his uh, – he's had a- awakenings before, but this is where he came up with his Dianetics, basically. Yeah, I saw Iwas continued on, like, for years and years and years as basically a guardian angel for him and whatever acolytes he had serving him at the time. Like, they would call on Iwas for protection yeah. sometimes. So, he was like a kind of a lifelong guardian for – um, for Crowley, at least to Crowley and his, his followers. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, he talked a lot about guardian angels. Um, he had a, a two daughters, uh, and then toward the end of his life had a son who has an interesting story that we should probably do a short stuff on. Um, but in 1905, they had Lilith, who was their first daughter. Uh, she died, and I saw different things here. She died of typhoid in Burma, but I saw that he had basically kind of abandoned his wife mm-hmm. At this point, and she couldn't really care for her herself because of her alcoholism, and he blamed her death on her. Yeah. Uh, don't know how true that is, but they would eventually have a second daughter named Lola Zaza, who uh, you found one of the greatest pictures of any human of all time on the internet. It is so cool, man. That kid looks like just a genuinely cool, freaky it girl, you know what I mean? Well, she's wearing a goat, so we should <laughs> just preface that for people who are triggered by wearing animal hides, and she's wearing more than a hide. It's yeah. a, a hide and a head. Yeah, yeah. I think that was a good idea. Yeah. Um, but so her sister's name, her full name, Sister Lilith, um, who preceded her and died as a baby, was Nuit Ma Ahathur Hectate Sappho Jezebel Lilith Crowley. Amenhotep. Yeah. Just went by Lilith for short. Yes, and she had very sadly a very short life. Yeah, yeah. So I saw that too, that um, even though Crowley had abandoned his wife and infant baby in China and they were making their way back and she died in Burma, that he still blamed, he blamed Rose for the baby's death, like yeah. f- like fully. It took zero responsibility for it. And that was a frequent, um, uh, like a, a common thing that happened or that he did during his life too. Like things, tragedy, sometimes life ending tragedy would would befall people around him because of him and his decisions, and he just would not accept responsibility for that kind of stuff. Yeah, one of the reasons he uh, was eventually ostracized from the mountaineering community, which um, was a pretty small community at the time, uh, he reportedly was on a trip with some people, 
um, got into a fight with them while they were on the trip because he wanted to control how it went down. And they, uh, he splintered off from them. There was an avalanche and they were all basically buried and like crying for help. And as the story goes, he was nearby drinking tea and like didn't do anything to help them and they died. Mm-hmm. And then the word got out and everyone was like, I don't want to climb with this guy anymore. Yeah, I think he even wrote like an article about the expedition in the Daily Mail and used it to blame everybody but himself for it. That sounds about right. Yeah. I mean, he really was not a good person at all and actually was a bad person in a lot of ways, too. Yeah. He had um, Rose institutionalized eventually for alcoholism. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I didn't hear about his son. Um, and I don't know what his relationship with was with his daughter, uh, Lola. Um, they just kind of fade out of the story and he just kind of continues on, which probably says about everything you need to know. Yeah, well, let's do a short stuff on his son. Um, okay. Because it, it was, there was way more to the story than I could really comprehend for this. But he had a son late, late in life who eventually was a part of the, I think, British military and tried to overthrow the government <laughs> who died in the 2000s. I think he died in 2006. So, wow. Um, this was like way late in his life. But yeah, let's, let's maybe follow up on that. So you want to take another break and then just come back and hit a few more high points and then talk about his his idea of what magic was? Sure. Okay, we're going to do that, everybody. And don't worry, we will talk about sex magic eventually. Okay, so you said that he uh, ended up joining a second uh, group, the OTO. Prior to that, he he tried his hand at founding his own secret occult group, the AA, which from pretty much every source I saw stood for Astrum Argentinum, uh, which means silver star. So it was the order of the silver star, basically. Yeah, it's A with a little symbol, then A and a little symbol. Mm-hmm. Um, and as as after the OTO, which was an established group, approached him, because apparently he was publishing secrets yeah. um, of the OTO. But he got sued. He did get sued, but from from basically all accounts, he he really had not exposed their secrets knowingly. He had stumbled upon this stu- stuff himself through his own rituals and practice. And they they found out that he had accidentally done this, that he hadn't, he'd figured it out himself. And they said, oh, well, you're immediately like a, a high-ranking OTO official and we're going to initiate you now. Um, because anybody who stumbled on their secrets themselves just automatically became a member. And so he was very proud of that and happy about that. And, of course, the OTO kind of went different ways with him because uh, it was Aleister Crowley after all. Um, and he started pursuing other stuff, too. Yeah, and we should point out, too, that when he was sued by uh, his rival from the Golden Dawn for publishing secrets, he won that lawsuit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he he didn't lose it. Um, but, yeah, he, he pursued other things. There's uh, this long-standing story that he uh, tried to – and he definitely tried to become a spy for Britain uh, during the wars. But uh, he was always rebuffed unless you believe – that he really, really was a spy, and he was so on the down low <laughs> that that information never really came out. Um, but by all accounts, he tried to be a spy during the wars, and England always said, thank you, but no thank you. Uh, then he went to work for the Germans for a little while. And this is where it gets a little confusing, He because he claimed he was trying to write uh, as a writer, he was trying to write stuff about the Germans that was so preposterous that it would have helped the Allies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but who knows? Yeah. Um, who knows? It is kind of up for debate whether he was actually a secret agent or not, for sure. I don't They'll probably – well, I don't know. I guess it could be settled that those things are probably – those documents are still around somewhere if they exist, you know? Yeah. Um, so he, uh, after World War II, um, he ended up going back to England. He, remember, he traveled the world. He, he did, he traveled um, across the Sahara into, into Tangier, I think, on foot. 
he traveled from the Pyrenees down to Gibraltar on foot. Um, he did time in Mexico, Japan, India, uh, did a lot of mountain climbing. So he did tons of traveling. But I guess toward the end of his life, as it was winding down a little bit, he he wanted to be closer to home. Uh, he had a lifelong uh, case of bronchitis. Um, so he moved back to England, and a doctor prescribed him heroin. And uh, he— uh, And he uh, said, oh, I've had plenty of this. <laughs> right. He's like, oh, yeah, old friend. But I—, I I don't know if he had successfully kept himself from becoming addicted to it before or not, but this time it got its hooks in him, and he spent the last several years of his life uh, addicted to heroin, like heavily addicted to heroin, um, and ended up dying, I believe, in 1947. Yes, uh, basically broke in a boarding house. Yeah. All right, so maybe we should talk uh, finally about sex magic. Finally, blood sugar, not blood baby. sugar, sex magic. I knew you were going to say that. I can't. Uh, but preceding the, well, not preceding. This is all a big part of it. But I did mention his stay <clears> in <throat> Italy. Uh, these were three big years in his life. Is when he lived at a um, Ed calls it a small estate in Sicily, but it was really a pretty run down, ramshackle uh, farmhouse out mm-hmm. in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Uh, and this is what he called his church. This is the Abbey of uh, Thelema. And it was squalid and it was gross. And he had uh, – this is where things uh, – he did the worst of the worst even by his standards uh, when it came to these rituals. And this is where animal sacrifice may or may not have happened. Blood ritual may or may not have happened. Uh, ingesting all kinds of uh, human excrement may or may not happened. Um, it was – you know, these were the dark days, or I guess as far as he's concerned, the, the best days. <laughs> right, the salad days. Maybe. So sex magic, I don't want to give sex magic a bad name because a lot of people practice sex magic, and there's a lot of wide variety of sex magic. And even the stuff, a lot of the stuff that Aleister Crowley, you know, um, performed was just kind of like, oh, that's it, okay. Um, that's, that seems fine. Right. <laughs> uh, it wasn't necessarily degrading or debasing. It didn't necessarily involve sacrifice or anything like that. There were frequently multiple people involved. Um, but it's like, and all of it was in the service of like entering a higher plane, communicating with uh, other beings um, and figuring out, you know, what worked best and what, what didn't work. Um, but with sex magic, and sex magic seems to have been pretty much the basis of all of his rituals. Did you get that impression too? Like pretty much all of the magic he did was sex magic to some degree or another, right? Yeah, and that's one of the sort of issues I have with him is it seemed like most of it revolved around getting people to do sexual acts they wouldn't have ordinarily done. Um, So, again, the purpose of all of it, as far as he was saying, was to, to figure out what else is out there and to basically use magic to 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 communicate with higher planes and to get that knowledge and to basically bring it back here on earth to create a, a more just and equitable society under thalamic law right that was that's what his stated point was that's what his point was uh he wrote very detailed graphic uh manuals that were very precise about every sex act you can think of mm-hmm. uh, to be, a, you know, a part of his Thelemic religion. Mm-hmm. And he sort of believed that he was onto something with magic being what he thought was the middle ground between science and religion. He thought religion was, uh, seemingly thought religion was way too uh, constrictive uh, and kind of got in between people and, and attaining spiritual enlightenment. Mm-hmm. Uh, he It seemed like he thought science was... Uh, too rigid. Uh, I would argue that he probably thought science was too caught up in facts and things like that, uh, where he wanted to be a little more loosey-goosey yeah. with it. And so he thought he sort of had the, the perfect middle road there with uh, magic with the CK. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. He would use tr- experimentation and trial and error to figure out the best way, the, be- the most effective ritual magic. Right. Uh, it seems that, you know, and this is one of those deals where Ed even points out he was sort of a man of his time and his attitudes towards other races. Uh, he did express racist and anti-Semitic uh, attitudes at times, um, but maybe no worse than other people did at the time. That doesn't excuse it, obviously. No. But as far as just sort of putting him in a time and place. Uh, but, you know, he also traveled all over the world and experienced all different types of cultures. And mm-hmm. I don't think 
did so with disdain. Right. Um, we talked also, Chuck, about um, th- uh, Thelema and the, uh, th- the law of Thelema. Um, and there's a very famous, like, passage from it. Well, there's really just kind of three laws for Thelema. But the one that, that people um, cite most frequently, and it's actually, uh, I guess, inscribed on the vinyl of Led Zeppelin's third album, appropriately called Led Zeppelin III. <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Yes. And if there's ever been a string of words more ripe for misinterpretation, it is that one. Yeah, I think a lot of people say he's basically saying uh, there are no consequences; just do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. And uh, which is, um, and we should point out he he was never a Satanist. He was called that at times. And I think when people think of Aleister Crowley, probably because of Ozzy, and um, people think he was a Satanist, but he never was. And he kind of used that a little bit to get some attention, mm-hmm. but he was never into Satanism. Um, but the reason I mentioned that is uh, to do with that quote. Like, apparently he did not mean it that way. Like, you can just do whatever you want as long as you're making yourself happy and uh, go not with God, but go with yourself. Well, what I saw was that he's saying, do what thou wilt, meaning like f- your purpose in life is the purpose in life, like figuring out what your purpose is mm-hmm. and applying your full self to it is is it. That, that's the whole of the law. That, that's what that, that meant to him. Yeah. Um, he also said the law, love is the law, love under will, meaning like to, to find love and to be a loving person under like secondary to the idea that figuring out what your purpose in life is. Um, so then loving loving your purpose and learning to love by carrying out your purpose. And then um, thou hast no right but do thy will, which means just you really should be doing those first two. Yeah. <laughs> so um, those, that, that was like the law of Thelema. But like, like you were saying, like he's frequently considered a Satanist, even though he never was. And like the people are like he didn't have any regard for consequences. And he kind of didn't, but that's not really what that Thelemic law was saying. So right. he's very much misinterpreted and reinterpreted. Um, and it, that especially started, uh, I think he died. He was very, very no, notorious while he was alive. Um, but when he died, not many people showed up. The papers covered it. But then that was 1947. He just kind of um, fell out of public consciousness, from what I understand, until 1967, when he made a surprise cameo on the cover of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album. Yes, the very famous album cover, with a, which was a collage of many, many famous people. Mm-hmm. And uh, Aleister Crowley was right in there. Uh, apparently, John Lennon um, enjoyed his writings. Uh, as did Jimmy Page and Timothy Leary, and you know his influence was was pretty great in what would end up being sort of the the hippie uh, experimental drug culture of the 1960s. Uh, they would invoke Aleister Crowley's name here and there for sure. Uh, so you know, for someone who uh, would probably not be a blip on the radar today, uh, he had a lot of. Uh, lasting influence and still does. And apparently also the the new age movement that really started to blossom in the 80s and has been pre- kind of revived today, 70s and 80s, I should say, uh, found its roots in the 50s. And those people were directly influenced by Crowley, Crowley's followers. Um, so he is very much the, the father of the modern new age movement and all of its uh, preoccupation with occultism and mysticism. And you mentioned um, the you mentioned how had he had he had a chance to be like L. Ron Hubbard, he would have grabbed it. And I agree with you. I think he would have. But there's uh, apparently a, a story that even the Scientologists confirm, but they they interpreted it differently. Um, that L. Ron Hubbard was actually uh, an acolyte, a follower of um, of Aleister Crowley's immediate heir. So, like, who they founded the Agape Lodge, and L. Ron mm-hmm. Hubbard was there performing magic with another guy, Jack Parsons, who founded the Jet Propulsion Lab, who was a big-time Crowley acolyte. Yeah. Um, and the Scientologists say L. Ron Hubbard was there trying to destroy this this church from the inside, but uh, a lot of people say, no, this is actually where L. Ron Hubbard started <laughs> yeah. to get his ideas for Scientology. And, and uh, that's where it grew from, was from Crowley's influence. You could draw some parallels, that's for sure. Yeah, one or two. 
So that's it. How do you feel? Like 30? I need to take a bath? Yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> I kind of do too. Um, okay, well, we made it through Alistair Crowley, everybody. And since Chuck said he needs to take a bath, and I agree, uh, it's time for listener mail. Uh, I'm going to call this repping at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. This is from Evan and Kaylee. Uh, Evan Weaver from Harrisonburg, Virginia, a sophomore at James Madison U- University. And his girlfriend, Kaylee Wagner, went to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. And he says this. Uh, on our way there, we re-listened to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame podcast to build the anticipation. Once there, uh, and when we finished looking through all the exhibits, we found ourselves at a station where we could design custom band logos and print stickers. Uh, Kaylee and I decided to make some of these stickers based on our favorite band names from the podcast. Awesome. Uh, they print two copies of the sticker, one to take home, and another to place on the walls of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Needless to say, if you ever visit there and find stickers with the band names Worm Burden and Itch Scratch Cycle. That's awesome. You know who put them there. That is really uh, cool. Yeah, Evan and Kaylee, that is huge. We need to get this to be a thing that Evan and Kaylee started. Yes, every visitor needs to do this. Attention, Stuff You Should Know listeners, including the new twins. If you ever go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, will you follow in Evan and Kaylee's footsteps for us? It'd be awesome. Yeah. Our goal is to one day take over the real band names. Because there's so many <laughs> Stuff You Should Know fake That'd be wonderful. Names. See, that's a great exhibit. That's way better than, you know, Jimmy Page's mailbox from Bullskin House behind plexiglass. <laughs> you know? Oh, I so wish that was there. <laughs> it may be. It may be. <laughs> it's where I got my post. <laughs> so thanks a lot, Evan and Kaylee, not just for the email, but for starting what we can only hope is a stuff you should know tradition to last for years and years and years. Agreed. Uh, and if you want to be like Evan and Kaylee and start a new tradition, uh, or even if you just want to get in touch and say hi, you can email us too at stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.